This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. For the past several years, a certain kind of conversation has been common for me with church leaders. Here's a sample, an actual quote. In the recent past, I was solely attentive to the slow but steady encroachment of restrictions from some elements of the ideological left. Now, I fear, we must guard against the possibility of tyranny emerging from segments of the political right. What saddens me the most is the degree to which numerous saints aid and abet such developments out of fear of the former, end quote. When church leaders assume that they can only scan for attacks in one direction, they leave Christians vulnerable to different dangers. That's what this friend is writing about here. What the church needs then is what Trevin Wax calls multi-directional leadership, leaders who combine dexterity and discipline. Leaders today must demonstrate faithful versatility. And that's what Trevin Wax commends in his new book, The Multidirectional Leader, Responding Wisely to Challenges from Every Side, published by the Gospel Coalition. Wax applies multidirectional leadership to the most contentious issues facing the churches around the world, really, right now. Uh, bold man, Trevin. Race, politics, and gender as a sample. All those fun things to discuss with your friends. Uh, unity and truth, we believe, can still triumph in a divided age, and that's what I want to talk with Trevin about on Gospel Bound. Trevin, thanks for joining me. Colin, thank you for having me. Trevin, what first attuned you to the need for multidirectional leadership? Well, I think it's it's something that's been coming up over time in the last decade or so. Um, as I've looked at the, as I've learned more about the history of evangelicalism, and have watched the increasing tribalism and polarization of our of our time. One of the one of the things that those of us guys who love history do is when you're faced with a, a challenge in the contemporary moment, you look back to uh, uh, leaders in the past to see how they handled, if if not the same issues, at least similar challenges and and and, and struggles. And um, and so, in looking back at the history of evangelicalism and also some of the, the stalwart evangelical leaders of the of the previous generations. Um, I, I came to realize that there's a there's something of an instinct at play in some of these leaders where they could sound in one room as if the 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 most dangerous temptation or enemy is from one coming from one side, and then they could go to a different room of different people with different temptations and tendencies and could sound a different alarm. And I just noticed that was increasingly rare in our day. And so that's what began to stir up some thoughts about what, what does it look like for us to be pastors and church leaders 
and thinkers who are adept at recognizing dangers that come to the flock of God from different directions. Let's do some test cases right off the bat, Trevin. Okay, so Billy Graham, John Stott, multi-directional leaders. Yeah, and I would I would put Stott more at in that category than Billy Graham, although Billy Graham certainly was a neo-evangelical, so he recognized certain dangers of fundamentalism, and he also recognized dangers of liberalism. In fact, most all of the neo-evangelical leaders from the middle part of the 20th century were in a way doing what, what Christian Smith talks about in his book, American Evangelicalism. They were carving out a space between mainline Protestantism at the time and the fundamentalist culture that many of them had grown up in. So in one sense, yeah, you would put Billy Graham in that category. John Stott, though, perhaps because of the global perspective that he had. John, John Stott, I, I mentioned in the book, is, is really an exemplar in a lot of ways. Um, to give a good example from his ministry, you know, at, at one assembly of an ecumenical church assembly, he sounds like a fiery fundamentalist saying, you guys aren't weeping for lost people. You're wanting to, to resolve issues like world hunger and other social issues that are pressing and needed. And yes, Christians should be involved in, but I one of his quotes is, I sense, you know, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I see no tears in this assembly over the lostness of, 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 of people. But then a few years later in a very different assembly could be very strident in the, uh, the case that he made for why the mission of the church should be conceived more broadly instead of narrowly about evangelism. It should be conceived more broadly, including the great commandment, including the, the social ministry that that the church is called to do. Now, I don't agree with John Stott in all of the ways that he actually articulated the, the mission of the church. And I think there's some good pushback even today from, from different people uh, who have examined very closely his, his understanding of the church's mission. But that instinct to be able to, on the one hand, sound the alarm against those who would water down the gospel into, into social ministry and social work, and on the other hand, in a different setting, speak very boldly about the dangers of sort of an obscure and isolationist fundamentalism that he would see. I think that instinct is what we need more of in, in the church today and in, in leadership. Let's talk about Billy Graham a little bit there. I wonder if we could say that Billy Graham grew in that over time, because I would say probably Trevin at first his one directional leadership was basically anti-communist. That's why he becomes famous out of Los Angeles. That's why Luce and Time and these places pick up on him. And of course, for conversion, but it was seen within that context. And from that era, Harold John Ockin Gay sounds fairly similar. That, was, that, was, that, kind of, that was seen as the threat. But I think you're right. Over time, then Graham begins, especially when you get to the New York Crusade 57, then the fundamentalists turn against him and so then Chris, he started Christianity Today right before that. And so he's trying to carve out that space. We're not fundamentalist. We're not mainline. We're evangelical. And then by the time you get post-Nixon, which even there, the politics, the two presidents he was closest to, Johnson, Democrat, Nixon, Republican. And then later on, all of a sudden, then he's coming out in the 1980s for nuclear disarmament. And so he was somewhat unpredictable, which is, I think, a little bit of what you get out of multi-directional leaders, is that they're, they're, you can't always size up exactly where they're going to be on all these things. Now, let me cite a non-Christian leader, but who seems to be maybe the most popular leader among Christian leaders, at least who I talk to, and that's Churchill. 
Churchill a multi-directional leader or was he successful because he was not a multi-directional leader? He was so fixated on Nazism and Hitler. Yeah, no, I I actually think uh, Churchill would be a great example of a multi-directional leader. In fact, I I quote in the book from one of from a, a quote where he talks about sometimes consistency of purpose will look different based on the moment you're in. So he uses the example of you know if you're in a boat and you you know at one point you're going to have to lean all your weight into one area. And then another, you're going to have to lean all your weight into another area because of the waves and the tempest and the way that the actual circumstances are surrounding you. But that that movement of putting your weight here and then putting your weight there is not actually contradictory. It's not self-contradictory. It's not, it's not the sign of an undisciplined mind. It's actually the sign of a leader who exhibits dexterity and is actually so relentlessly focused on a particular purpose and that they can lean their weight in one way or another in order to achieve that that purpose. I, I wouldn't say Churchill was necessarily perfectly multidirectional in all in all aspects. He definitely was that way in the sense of crossing political tribes. I mean, you read the you read his biographies, and it's it's almost. I mean, those of us in the USA, it's different for us reading the, a UK biography because we might not be as you know as, as familiar with the the way that the politics work in Parliament and all of that, but. The way that he would go from from different party and and cross certain tribal uh, tribal yeah. lines is is one of the examples I think that a multidirectional leader often exhibits. I was just going to bring that up, Trevin. He was he switched parties, you know, conservative labor back to conservative. Okay, let's stop and just go back a step and say this all sounds good. Who wouldn't want to be like Churchill here, or like Stott, or like Graham? And yet this is not instinctive. For most leaders today. So why do so many leaders choose to push in only one direction? Well, I think one directional leadership, you know, that is where you're, you're, you're used to fighting off threats from a particular side. There, there are a lot of rewards that come with that, that style of leadership. Once you convince your followers that the threats to one side, say they're to your right or to your left are real. And then you only fight off threats in those direction, in that particular direction, a lot of the people who follow you will cheer you on for that, will actually come to love you for that, come to respect you for the way that you identify the common enemy that they see as well, and you are willing to go to battle for the sake of the gospel to fight the good fight in that area. So for example, if you are concerned about uh, you know, a slippery slope to the left, it makes total sense for you to focus your energies on avoiding that danger, whether by erecting other boundaries or putting fences along the lines of it. No one will go down that slippery slope. The problem, though, is there are also slippery slopes to the right as well. There are trajectories, troubling trajectories can go in more than one direction. And the the challenge is that if someone is used to calling out errors that they see from one side of the field that would lead people astray, and they also begin to then notice that there are challenges and dangers coming from a different side of the field, well, then the shepherd that wants to protect the flock from multiple dangers, when they begin to call out errors from the other side, they can lose influence with people that are that like them challenging or stepping on the toes of of, of people outside of their church pews, you know, or they're fine with fiery preaching as long as it's sort of directed against the dangers that they as the congregation have already identified and see, and they'll amen you all day on that. But when you begin to 
speak to these dangers that are a little closer to home or that begin to raise questions about your your own sort of tribal loyalty, that's when it can become costly. And so the easier path is to be one directional. The harder path is to have your mind, you know, like a radio trained to more than one frequency where you can pick up different dangers and then begin to issue warnings along those frequencies. I think one example, Trevin, that you and I would be familiar with would be how you could come across in a certain era in the American South as being very bold, very biblical, very convicted as a leader, calling out sin and alcohol is bad, dancing is bad, doctrinal compromise is bad, but you don't touch racism. You don't touch judgmentalism. You don't touch gossip, those kinds of things. And there's a reason why people don't touch those things, because generally speaking, people don't want to be told what they don't want to hear. Let's anticipate this objection to multidirectional leadership then. What's the difference between what you're commending here and a kind of calculated triangulation to appease everyone? I think multi-directional leadership is not appeasing everyone. It's more likely to offend everyone at some point. Um, I You just use the example of preachers in the South who were bold in, in addressing many sins, but not racism. I think there's preachers today, many preachers who will boldly speak on issues related to race and then never want to touch something as, as, as challenging as sexuality, for example. So the one directional impulse is very strong. What, what the multi-directional leader, though, is aiming for is the good of the flock. It, it's, not, it's not an appeasement strategy. It's not to find this perfect middle way. And in fact, the way that you know that it's not is that a multi-directional leader may not sound, it's not, the, the goal is not to sound alarms in perfect balance or equilibrium. That is, not the, that is not the goal because not every congregation is facing the same challenges. So, you know, to be perfectly balanced here would actually not be contextual. I think the, the, the point is not to find the right balance. It's to, to understand, to come to know the people that you as a pastor or a church leader are most called to serve and then to seek to speak to the issues that are most, the, the biggest temptations or dangers that they themselves will face. The, the point is not, let's find this middle way, this triangulation where we sound like we are issuing warnings all over the place so that everyone will agree with us. The, the, the point is to, to speak to real, to clear and present dangers that your congregation or the people who follow you or the organization that you lead as a Christian that they will recognize, but then to also issue warnings they may not they might not expect, but that you as the leader foresee dangers and temptations and tendencies that they need to be alert to. You're more likely to offend people than to appease people in that setting. But if you can do so with a winsomeness, a graciousness, and if they understand that underneath all of that is a care and concern for the good of their souls, the multidirectional leader can have a lot of influence and impact. You helped me to see there, Trevin, as I was thinking about the congregations that I grew up in, it would be very odd to be preaching about a lot of the same things that my current church preaches about because those issues just wouldn't have come up in the same ways. They just wouldn't be as relevant. So a multi-directional leader, depending on the context, may actually strongly emphasize one of those points and not and not others. I appreciate that. Just for for readers here wanting to know more, are you really just talking to pastors here, or do you see 
this approach applying in the marketplace, small groups, youth ministry? Uh, what does this look like for them, or does it even apply? Certainly. I mean, the focus of the book is primarily for pastors and church leaders and, and those who have influence in a local congregation, but there are all sorts of areas in which this does apply, and a couple of them I bring out in the book. I mean, in the business world, it's certainly true that a business leader needs to be aware of of threats coming from different directions. You know, I use the example of, you know, there's a, 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 a an economic crisis of some sort. Um, the temptation for some leaders would be to just to manage to the bottom line and to to begin to to lead the business base, basically in an overly defensive posture. But that that leads to particular challenges and dangers for an organization. Whereas um, other leaders in the organization may say, "This is the time to go big and go bold, and we need to innovate. We need to invest." And that is a is a is a good response, a natural response, but also one that carries with it particular dangers that could threaten the overall viability of of the organization. So it's like that in the business world. It's also like that in parenting. I, I mean, this is one of the things <laughs> that as a parent you come to learn is that there will be times when you will sound different emphases in the conversations that you have with your kids. Uh, I use the example in the book of just conversations that I had with our uh, about a year ago now with our our oldest son and our and our daughter about the pandemic and about um, what this means. What does it mean from a spiritual standpoint? And uh, to to my daughter, who was immediately doing sort of a one to one correlation, what sins are we suffering for as a cu- culture that this would happen to us? I had to in- inject a bit of mystery and a bit of you know, the, the, like the story of, of Jesus and the man born blind and the story of Job and, and to say, you know, we don't, we don't always know God's ways. Uh, my son, however, when in speaking about this was basically taking a completely agnostic perspective of, well, we don't know what God is up to. There's no way for us to know if this is really from his hand or how or whatnot. I had to take more of the approach of, well, actually, you know, the Bible does say that God sends calamities and plagues and that God is in control even of this and that God is calling us to repentance and faith and teaching us through through these things. Now, you would listen to those conversations and you'd think that as a parent, I'm <laughs> contradicting myself. But in reality, I'm, I'm wanting to instill in my kids a, a certain instinct, a certain balance that you find in scripture where we don't know all the ways of God, but we do know some of the ways of God to where we wouldn't fall prey to a sort of agnostic, we can't know anything that God is up to. Uh, neither do we want a, a sort of a, a, a falling into a sort of fatalism where there's a direct one-to-one correlation between all sin and suffering. This is the biblical approach. I think those are biblical emphases, uh, biblical truths that we want to hold in, in, a, in a proper tension uh, with each other. And, and so in parenting, as we, as we raise our kids, at times your, your kid's going to need more comfort than challenge. And other times your kid's going to need more challenge than comfort. But it's, it's up to a multidirectional parent to recognize, I can't just parent in one particular way. Because that doesn't always work depending on the kid that I'm talking to at the moment or the circumstances that we're in. And I think that that developing that instinct is actually really important for multiple spheres of life. I love that because you're exactly right, Trevin. All of us as parents know how different our kids are. And if you're completely consistent in all those different ways and hit the same things with every kid, it can land totally differently on different kids and at different times. I really like that comparison a lot. You've been alluding several times here to scripture. Where do we find evidence of this multi-directional leader commended in scripture? 
Well, I think you you can see it if you look for it. And I mean, if we just stick with the New Testament, for example, I, th- I think you can see it in the in the teachings of Jesus in the same sermon can say, let your light shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to God. You know, basically, you're the light of the world. Shine that light. Don't hide it under, a, you know, under a, a bushel. And then, you know, in the same sermon, he can say, hey, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Uh, don't sound trumpets. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And of course, in in he, Jesus is speaking on the one hand to uh, give. In in both cases, the the concern is the glory of God, right? So it's one consistent purpose in both of those commands. Um, at the on the one hand, he's saying you ought to do good deeds so that other people see and give glory to God. On the other hand, he's saying don't do good deeds with the wrong motivation so that other people see and give glory to you. Um, these are not contradictory. These are, uh, he's, he's, he's speaking to and alerting to different dangers. Um, you sometimes see it on display in the New Testament among emphases from different um, leaders. And so I wouldn't want to give the impression that there's an, any such thing as sort of the perfect multidirectional leader. Um, multidirectional leaders actually will lean on other multidirectional leaders in order to identify and maybe uh, alert to threats that they wouldn't otherwise see. So, for example, a lot of people love to pit James and Paul against each other when it comes to justification by faith, when in reality, we ought to see James and Paul as swordsmen who are standing back to back fighting off opposing enemies, Paul opposing those who would uh, water down the glorious gospel of grace that we see in justification being by faith alone, James fighting off those who would turn justification into license or to see justification as meaning that this faith doesn't stir up good works, the, the, the faith that that uh, we're saved by, by we're justified by faith alone. But as we say, the, the, that faith never stands alone. It always is accompanied by good works. And so those who would deny the, the fruitfulness of the gospel uh, are, are the target of James's concern. And whereas those who would add to the gospel are the target of Paul's concern. They are not contradicting one another. They are op- opposing different enemies and issuing different warnings based on the circumstances that they find themselves in. And we need both of them in order to have a full-orbed view of Christianity. We've talked about some biblical examples. We've talked about some historical examples. Give some other examples, Trevin, of people you think do this well as leaders and how. I think it's more challenging for for leaders than we recognize. And so um, I, I, I don't think that any leader would immediately want to raise their hand and say, oh, that's me. I'm, I'm excelling at this because I think this is a work in progress for for anyone who wants to to issue these calls and these challenges in the way that um, would would identify different dangers from different sides, I I do, you know, lift up a number of examples in the book of people that I think who even in our contemporary setting do this well. Um, one example would be Carl Ellis. In matter of right now, one of the one of the chapters in the book is is very briefly treating the 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 ongoing conversations we're having about racial justice and per- the pursuit of racial justice should look like, what the role of the church is in that, what um, uh, are particular ideologies that may be um, antithetical to the gospel and yet have made inroads in secular society, what you know, what can be learned from uh, secular sources, what needs to be dismissed uh, from secular sources. All of those are questions and conversations that the church is, is having uh, currently. I lift up Ellis be, Dr. Ellis, because he has been in this, these conversations for decades now, and because he is willing to 
issue warnings from more than one direction. He's not simply going to speak out against racism. He will also speak out against uh, unbiblical approaches to racism. I, I think of someone like George Yancey would be another example. I can think of people in the in evangelical circles who, when it comes to hermeneutics, for example, will, will speak out against a certain naive Scottish common sense realism when it comes to interpreting the biblical text that, you know, everything's right there on the surface and that there's really not a lot of need for, for depth and study when it comes to understanding the meaning of a text versus those who would relativize all texts and say that, um, you know, that there, that there is no stable or inherent meaning in a text and it's all based just on a reader's response. Um, there is an evangelical way that avoids both of those approaches. And there are people like Grant Osborne and, um, and, and others who have led the way, I think, there in helping us think through um, those issues in a way that is faithful to scripture, uh, understanding of the contextual moment that we find ourselves in, and yet also is going to lead to some to, to fruitful exegesis and exposition. A few more questions here, Trevin. I'm worried, you and I have talked about this before. I'm worried that the evidence suggests we don't actually want this kind of leadership in the church. What evidence do we have that anyone wants to be corrected or persuaded? We don't see much of that attempted in politics or media or fundraising. We know it's easier, as we talked about before, for pastors to praise the people who pay their bills and condemn the people who don't. So how do we incentivize multidirectional leadership so that more people realize that this is not only the faithful approach, but in fact, the only fruitful approach? Yeah, there's not a really good answer to that question because everything in society is incentivizing the opposite, right? All the incentives generally are going toward the to the one directional leader, uh, as you just mentioned. One of the reasons for this book is because I want leaders that believe this is a need and want to develop this instinct and want to push against some of the tribalism and polarization of our age to know that they're not alone, that these principles are real that there are good examples of them in scripture and throughout church history, um, and that we need to to recognize, and, and if we're going to be faithful, we need to cultivate um, this, this sensibility as best we can. Um, so one thing, one way that I would love to incentivize multidirectional leadership is simply by, you know, introducing the concept and helping people to see it and to celebrate it where, where it's at. Um, another thing, though, I would say is that I believe there are more Christians that are hungry for this kind of leader, there are more Christians than we may think. Even though the incentives seem to go in the other direction and many of the loudest and most divisive voices can seem to rule the day, there are a number of believers, I believe, who who look at the current situation and recognize that we need people who will cross certain categories and that will uh, not stand within only the confines of whatever worldly tribal category has been foisted upon them. Um, I believe there are Christians that are hungry for that kind of leadership. They're just not as vocal and as loud as those who tend to rail against uh, leaders who exhibit this kind of sensibility. There's not a lot in society and in the current moment re- related to politics and to social media and to just the the ethos of our time that gives me a lot of hope in this regard. But scripture gives me hope that, uh, and, and church history gives me hope that God has raised up leaders who who do this well. And the book points out multiple examples of that, even in times, in some cases, worse than, than, than the moment that we're currently in. 
Um, there have been times throughout church history where it's looked pretty bleak for a, a leader who's seeking to be faithful to scripture. Um, and yet God has has raised up wonderful men and women of the faith who have exhibited this sensibility and who have done so for the good of the church and who have left fruit for many decades, even following their their deaths. Lightning round bonus question, Trevin. Martin Luther, John Calvin, multidirectional, each one of them, one directional. How do you answer? So great question. I think Calvin is more multidirectional than Luther. Because we've got Farrell as the sort of um, foil. Farrell was a uh, quintessential one directional leader. And Calvin's, especially after his time with Bootser, he's he becomes more multidirectional. Yes. And I, um, you know, there are aspects in which Luther is multidirectional too. He tends to be one directional in the one note that he wants to hit constantly in everything. Okay. But he could be multidirectional in the sense of, well, he recognizes certain dangers in medieval Catholicism, but he also recognizes dangers uh, in, good point. in the radical Anabaptists. Radical Reformation. That's a good point. I hadn't right. thought about that. So I, I would say Calvin more than Luther, but Luther has a, he does demonstrate the sensibility in certain, in certain cases. Um, I, it's, it's hard. He's such a polemicist. It's hard to, to see him in, in sort of the same category as a John Stott and others who would be very careful with the beliefs of other of the people that they're they're arguing against. Luther doesn't exi- demonstrate the same kind of care um, as as maybe Calvin and other uh, reformers do. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, you're exactly right that Luther was seeking to strike that balance between order and chaos in, in organized society as he was trying to understand the and work out the implications of the gospel of grace. But you're right that he also basically struck one polemical note, which is, I'm right, and all of my opponents are terrible. <laughs> that was the challenge as well. And I do think that at it's clear if we're understanding Paul's letter to the Philippians that also God uses all kinds of different people with all kinds of different motivations. And we do know that at certain times, somebody with that one emphasis is going to be used by God in in amazing ways. But generally, I think, I I mean, I agree with you that the multidirectional approach is what's um, commonly needed and commended. Last question before we jump to the final three, then, what would it look like to train rising leaders in this approach, Trevin? Well, I think if we're going to train the next generation to to think this way or to, to want to develop this sensibility, we we have to lift up heroes who have demonstrated it in the past, for one, so that we learn from them, that we glean insight from them. And then we also look to leaders in the past and see where they they may have fallen short in this regard or that. I, I don't think there's any any point in idolizing the leaders who have come before us. I think they all have their flaws and struggles and how we learn from them, I think is important. Um, so I think, I think that's one way that we, we go forward. Another way would be to celebrate uh, contemporary examples where this is done well. Leaders who respond very carefully to criticisms and to concerns and to, and who are not, who are not always predictable in the dangers that they, uh, that they sound the alarm about. If we're going to push against this sort of one directional all the time mentality, then we're going to have to um, we're going to have to celebrate counterexamples of that. Uh, people who are willing to to cross worldly political categories and and worldly tribalism in order to to say what they think the church needs to hear. So we'll we'll need to do that. And then finally, though, I think it it's it's us wrestling 
and, and getting into the biblical text and, and enjoying and loving and celebrating different emphases that we find in scripture itself. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, scripture is not just constantly beating on only one uh, theme. There are multiple themes. There are, there are different emphases. There are different points of tension in the, the, the biblical text that deserve to be um, explored. And we need to be faithful to everything we find in scripture, not just to the, the common themes that people most love hearing or that we most enjoy talking about. And so I think scripture itself is a source of renewal for us if we're going to develop that that sensibility. The norming norm That's scripture. Right. I, I think back to a decade plus ago and a lot of the discussions about grace and, and the law, classic, uh, of course, issue in the church. And where I saw things start to go wrong was when an emphasis turned from being highlighting certain texts to then all of a sudden becoming a canon within a canon, and then from there to being to the exclusion and pitted against other biblical teaching. That was the progress. Started as an emphasis, moved to then an exclusive focus, then took that and pitted it against everything else in scripture. That was that was what I what I watched progress in some of the leaders uh, in that discussion. And again, the norming norm of scripture would have helped to do that, uh, bringing the whole counsel of God to bear. Well, every heresy begins that way, right? Heresy is is always more narrow than orthodoxy in that it's generally seizing upon one truth and then wielding it as a weapon against all others. And then it becomes the unassailable foundation for a new religion altogether. That's what heresy is is like. Orthodoxy is always broader than heresy because it it holds multiple truths you know, it's Arius that wants to narrow uh, the, our understanding of Jesus. And he, he can't be both divine and human. You know, it's Athanasius who holds both together. Oh, I love that. Glad I, glad I pushed on that. That's helpful, Trevin. Okay, we've been talking with Trevin Wax, his new book, The Multidirectional Leader, Responding Wisely to Challenges from Every Side. We're blessed to have Trevin as a columnist and now a book author with the Gospel Coalition. Very grateful for that. Trevin, let's close this off. The final three, how do you find calm in the storm? Well, I love to, to read and reflect and to continue a daily routine that includes exercise and you know, as much as I can keep to a routine, it helps me be able to keep the storm slotted in certain moments of the day <laughs> rather than it overtaking the day. Um, and there's nothing like, you know, unwinding, watching some classic sitcoms with your kids in the evenings. So All right, you got to give us a couple of examples. What are your classic sitcoms here? Oh, we're, we're big fans of the old like Nick at night shows. So I grew up on all, you know, WandaVision has been really fun for us this year because the homage to Dick Van Dyke show and to the Brady Bunch, like my kids know those Mary Tyler Moore show. I love Lucy. These classics, they, that stand the test of time do so, do so pretty well. Before Nick at night became friends about 10 years (laughs) ago. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Trevin, where do you find good news today? I think the, the best place to find good news is um, in the news. If you're looking for it, if you, uh, if you'll actually pick up, um, magazines or frequent websites and not only look at the headlines that come across your social media feed, which tend to be more negative, uh, but actually look at, at good news. Some email newsletters have been some examples of this for me where people are pointing to, 
really good things that are happening in in the world. Um, I think that's that's an important place to look. And then also just looking locally at your local congregation, seeing people growing in the faith, seeing young people being discipled, seeing uh, um, people that are bearing the fruit of the spirit. You got to look locally and not nationally sometimes to just see that the spirit of the uh, of God is is still at work and he is moving and changing people. You have described better than I ever could, Trevin, the spirit of Gospel Bound, this podcast, and of course, also the the book that we've worked on um, related to that. I love it. Uh, last question, Trevin, what's the last great book you've read? I think the, the one of the most recent great books that I've read would be, I probably have to give that to uh, Mark Knoll, America's God. Which okay. which traces the um, the history of Christianity in America from the the time of uh, the founding and even before uh, from the 1700s all the way to the Civil War. The, a lot of in- interesting information that I was unaware of in that book related to the religiosity of early Americans and actually what early America wasn't quite as religious as we uh, we we think it was. Also, just the way that religion shaped America, but then also the way America shaped Christianity. Um, so so that that book by Mark Knoll certainly gives a lot a, a good overview as to the the impact of Christianity on America and how America has shaped Christianity, the Christianity we've inherited as well. I love it, Trevin. Trevin Wax has been my guest on Gospel Bound. Take a look at his new book, The Multidirectional Leader, Responding Wisely to Challenges from Every Side. Thank you, Trevin. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thank you.